Welcome to the New York Welsh podcast, the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York while hopefully inspiring the creation of some new ones. I am Richard. And I am Gideon. Our featured guest today can't be with us in person because... Uh, he is the one and only rock star poet Dylan Thomas. Born in Swansea, spent most of his life, uh, spent his time between Wales and London, but created his long-lasting legacy with his visits to New York in the early 1950s. Perhaps most known for his play for voices, Under Milkwood, which actually premiered here in New York before it went out on the BBC. Now, I'm not sure if you knew this, Gideon, but International Dylan Thomas Day was actually celebrated on the very day that Under Milkwood was first premiered here in this fine city. In absence of having Dylan Thomas with us, we have the next best thing, another Swansea poet, Peter Thabit-Jones, who is the author of the book The Dylan Thomas Walking Tour of Greenwich Village. It's available on Amazon. And there's also an app which allows you to do a self-guided tour around Dylan Thomas's favourite haunts that he would frequent when here on his visit. So rather than record from either Gideon or my own very small New York apartments, we thought, why not take to the streets of Granite Village and conduct the tour ourselves? The format's a little bit different to what you uh, might be used to from us. You might hear some horns in the background and Manhattan city noise. Yeah, I think it's quite, um, kind of sets the scene quite nicely, I think. Yeah, it's evocative, I suppose. Um, Oh, and speaking of set in the scene... Richard took photos of all the places we visited on the tour, and they'll be up on the Instagram if you want some visuals of the places we're talking about. So yeah, we hope you enjoy our walking tour with Peter Thabit-Jones for our episode on the great Dylan Thomas. Dylan's visit to New York. Dylan Thomas visited America four times, and his poetry readings forged a generation of enthusiastic admirers. Dylan was particularly popular in New York. In 1945, he approached his American publisher, James Lochlin, about the possibility of poetry reading tour of the country. It was though John Markham Brennan of the Young Men's and Women's Hebrew Association who eventually invited Dylan to America. On 21st of February, 1950, Dylan landed at a bitterly cold Idlewild, now JFK airport, for his first visit. He was booked for over 40 events across North America. The event venues included Harvard University and Yale University. He returned home three months later on the 3rd of May aboard the Queen Elizabeth. So that's, you know, when you think of it, 40 events, you know. I mean, that, uh, and in those days, of course, no mobile phones, do something. And uh, when I did it with the runway, we did it together. I mean, Dylan literally did most things by himself. So Brynham would give him tickets and say, you've got to be in such and such a state at such a time, this I'm saying. His wife, Caitlin, accompanied him on his second tour. They sailed to New York and the Queen Mary on 15th of January, 1952. It was on this trip that Caitlin became good friends with Rose Slifka, the then wife of sculptor David Slifka. Dylan and Caitlin added to the narrative of the growing legend and returned to Britain on the New Amsterdam on 16th of May. On the third visit, Dylan sailed on the SS United States on 21st of April, 1953. Caitlin, who remained in Lahn, expressed their opposition to Dylan touring again. Under Milkwood, featuring Dylan, was premiered in New York. It was at this time that Dylan developed a relationship with Liz Rytel, John Malcolm Brennan's assistant, 
was responsible for ensuring Dylan met the deadline for the first public airing of the full version of, of the play. Dylan flew back to London on 2nd of June, the day of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. On 19th of October 1953, Dylan arrived by plane in America for a planned fourth tour. He died on Monday 9th, 9th of November at St. Vincent's Hospital whilst the nurse was washing him. Okay. Liz Rytel is important because uh, she's there at the very end, you know, as you see when we get, uh, as, we, as the tour, as the walk unfolds, okay? So, so where are we now? We're now, um, okay, we're at the church of St. Luke's in the Fields, in the West Village, in the West the Village which is um, an Episcopalian church. And it's relevant because um, four days after Dylan died, on, on, on Friday the 30th of November, a memorial service took place for Dylan in this church. Um, around 400 people gathered and they included obviously Caitlin who sat at the front of the church, E. Cummings the poet, uh, the American poet, and uh, David Slifka, the sculptor I mentioned. Um, we do know at the back of the church sat a quite lonely uh, Liz Rytel, because obviously she was uh, the mistress. Um, it was the same day on the 13th that Caitlin was going to accompany the body of Dylan on the SS United States on the long journey back to Wales. Um, Dylan was one of the most famous poets in the English-speaking world, and his popular and electrifying visits made him a much-loved celebrity in America. During those visits, he met some of the greatest cultural American icons, such as Charlie Chaplin, Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, Marilyn Monroe, Henry Miller, and Max Ernst. Dylan's book sales rivaled those of T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden and John Betjeman. In fact, a year before, uh, on the 10th of November, the Collected Poems was published, Dylan's Collected Poems, and it sold over 30,000 copies instantly. Um, the book became, became even more successful after Dylan's death. Uh, leading British newspapers responded to Dylan's death, uh, covering the legend, you know, and, and the achievements as a poet. Uh, Philip Larkin, the British poet, said, I can't believe that D.T. is truly dead. Three people who've altered the face of poetry and the youngest has to die. The two other poets were Auden and Eliot. Vernon Watkins, a Gower poet, a very close friend. In fact, Vernon, when Dylan was alive, was the only one that he would show unfinished poems and ask for advice. And that's a very close relationship for a poet. Vernon was asked to write an obituary on the other side of the water before Dylan had actually died, you know. Um, now the other interesting fact about this church, I'm sure you're aware of the, of the Twas the Night Before Christmas, I mean all yes. children have read that. Well the author of that, uh, Clark Clement Moore, was a warden of, and he also gave the land to the church for it to be built. And I, of course Dylan Thomas wrote the famous A Child's Christmas in Wales, there's a lovely connection there. Okay. Mad. Yes. That's fantastic. Let's, so, let's, let's, let's walk. Let's okay. walk then. So where are we off to now? Um, the second one is Chumley's. Now, when we were there last, it, it was no longer Chumley's. The problem we have, you know, the White Horse Tavern is closing. No. Yeah, it's closed actually, so we're only going to see the outside, which is a real shame. 
because uh, we've got about a nice drink there. It's the final stop. Yeah. I was saying about the White House Tavern. Yeah. It's got a new management. It's closed at the moment, and there's, oh. there's a hell of a fuss because uh, there were rumours he was going to revamp it, and that would be disastrous, right. you know. Um, so we can't end up. Uh, we will, you know, we can end up there, but we can't go in there. Um, so we're going to um, Bedford Street, okay? okay? Which is between Grove Street and Barrow Street. Are we walking north? Uh, right I, now, going I, I think we actually need to head Yeah, I think it's that way. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. So this is it, isn't it? I think this That's is it. it. Yeah, this is it. Blocks it. Okay, then. Uh, Chumleys. Chumleys is, is an authentic speakeasy from the Prohibition era. Its previous notoriety is confirmed by the fact that it still has no sign and as well as its main entrance, it offers a secret entrance on 58 Barrow Street through the backyard called Pamela's Court. So people would secretly go that way then, see? Chumneys is New York's second oldest literary bar and the White Horse is the first because the White Horse was Dylan's uh, favourite. Its walls uh, in those days were covered with uh, the framed pictures of legendary writers and samples of their book covers and Dylan Thomas is one of the many honoured uh, along with literary greats such as John Steinbeck, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. But it would have been another place Dylan would have come to drink, you know, with his friends, uh, the British poet uh, Ruthven Todd, the New Zealand poet Alan Kurnow, and of course uh, David Slifka, you know. Um, it's safe to say by the second visit to, to New York, Dylan was a celebrity, you know. He would actually be accosted in the streets. He was attracting you know, a thousand people at, uh, in an audience for a reading, you know, which is incredible for poetry. Um, and then later on, he was actually um, being followed by um, a reporter for, from a newspaper who was trying to, you know, so it was very paparazzi kind of, wow. even in those days, kind of... Beyonce uh, of uh, Welsh writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he was known at home. Oh, but, gosh, but yes. Was yes. he celebrated anywhere near as much as... That's, well, that's a very good question. Um, but he, he did marvelous things on on uh, you know on the, on the radio in, and became very very well known. Uh, the Irish poet Leary McNeese, who worked for the BBC, was one of the people who booked him. You know, for instance, um, and um, he was an overnight success with eighteen poems. Undoubtedly, I mean, he took you know if you think of Auden, W. H. Auden, Stephen Spender, uh, Cecil Day Lewis, the thirties poets. They were writing about unemployment, you know, and, uh, you know, the 30s, uh, you know, the, the general strike and all that. And then out of the blue comes this Welsh poet with no connections at all uh, to cosmo cosmopolitan London and um, takes poetry back to its very roots, you know. Um, you know, the force that through the green fields drives the flower. Light breaks when no sun shines, you know. What is this guy writing about, you When know? you say it's very roots, you mean...? I mean poetry, you know. He took it back to, you know, its uh, musicality, to it dealing with um, profound things, do some saying, rather than uh, contemporary things, if you like, like right. unemployment. So more, t more timeless versus More timeless, that's a good way of putting it, Richard. Very good way of putting it. So he was well known. But when you think that actually the first real acknowledgement of Dylan's international aspect was um, the memorial stone in Cumdonkin Park in Swansea in the Uplands, and that was donated by the two ladies who started Cademan Records. And they were the ones, I mean, Dylan was their first, Dylan launched Cademan Records, which was eventually taken over, became so uh, successful, it was taken over by HarperCollins, you know. 
Um, but it took Swansea Council a long, long time to acknowledge his international status, you know. But he was known, I mean, he was definitely known within the literary world, you know. Um, but here he became more than that, he became a celebrity, undoubtedly, you know. And the money as well, right? Yes. He came to New York because the, the money he was getting was was so much more than he was getting at yes, home. Is yeah. that is that because of a lack of appreciation, or are we just talking about post-war Britain? Well, it's, you've touched. You know, you've touched on a very good point. I mean, I, I contributed to an anthology of writings on Dylan, a Dylan Odyssey for the centenary, and I cover my my pieces about Greenwich Village. And one of the things I point out is that, uh, of course, when Vil uh, Dylan was here back in Britain. They were on rations, okay? Uh, he earned money um, for the BBC, but uh, unfortunately, Caitlin was more of a bohemian than Dylan was. And I could say far more about Caitlin later on, maybe. But they, were, they weren't good with, it when, with money. It came in and went out. Um, um, he came to America for the pot of gold, but even that, uh, the only way that John, Mark and Brennan who organized the visits could get money back to Caitlin was to secrete it in a in like a handbag that was a present for Caitlin, knowing that Dylan would just waste it, you know, be between the journey back and getting to Lan, you know. Um, he'd stop off in he'd be just stopping off in London yeah. or something. Actually, during the Second World War, he worked for Gainsborough Films on propaganda films, uh, and he was earning really good money. I mean, he was earning like your average. Uh, white-collar worker, you know. And he'd be writing for, the, for those? He was writing uh, propaganda films, yes. Right. Um, you know, t towards the war effort, mm -hmm. you know. And um, he, he was turned down to actually join the army. He, and he made a big thing about it, but he was obviously unfit, you know. He went for the, you know, the, the fitness thing, but he, he failed it. And uh, so he eventually found work um, um, for Gainsborough uh, and Strand Films, you know. And he earned very good money. and. Uh, that experience, I believe, and I'm sure a, a lot of other uh, Dylan, if you like, admirers would acknowledge, is that uh, that contributed to a clarity in the work. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, writing film scripts, scripts is very different to writing poetry, and that uh, contributed to more clarity in his prose, and certainly contributed to Under Milkwood. Uh, I have this theory that had he lived, John Lennon and Paul McCartney were big Dylan Thomas fans, right? So bear in mind, he died in 1953, and I think A Hard Day's Night came out about 1963, only 10 years later. Had he lived, he would only have been 40-something, uh, close to 50. I think they would have approached him to write the script, because they actually asked a Welshman named Alan Owen, who was a, who was a script writer. And so they had a Welshman who wrote the script for A Hard Day's Night. And I really feel that had Dylan been alive, they would have approached Dylan, and one wonders what he would have come up with. It would have been, you know, probably terrific, you know. Do you think he would have then you know, written more films? I think so. I think I think his future would have probably been in uh, television. He would have been a celebrity, you know, like Gwyn Thomas, the writer Gwyn Thomas. You're probably too young to remember this. Uh, maybe your dads and your mothers would know this. Um, he would have appeared on television, on chat shows, does he say? I think he would have written for television, but I think, yeah, I think he would have um, gone more into drama. You know, Under Milkwood was the beginning of that, and certainly film scripts, you know, because that would have been, one is where the money was, and two, he would have wanted to expand himself as a writer. When you think about these, these people, these very successful people that died young, it's easy to imagine that that 
was always going to be. Yes, yes. But yeah, it's interesting to think what he would have gone on to do had yeah, he. Yeah. And yeah, it might not have necessarily been the same continuation of what he's doing. Yeah, because yeah, if you yeah. look back at others, they yeah. often are. Well, two points is one is that, to, you know, to counteract that, Dylan always claimed he, he would die young, right? I mean, that was, but again, that's the romantic notion of a poet, see, John Keats, do you know what I mean? Uh, Shelley, even I, when I was a young poet, it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's so romantic, that image is to, you know, you try to convince yourself you're a poet, so, you know, well, I'm going to die young kind of thing, okay? But the myth that he'd burnt out, I don't believe that at all, because um, Stravinsky had approached him, I, uh, you know, the classical composer, to work on a piece. Uh, I think it was Auden actually who suggested Dylan, possibly. And uh, Dylan came up with this marvellous idea of uh, uh, a world obliterated by an atomic bomb, and the only survivors were uh, a young man and a young girl, uh, a young boy and a young girl, and they would have been like the new Adam and Eve, you know. And so I don't buy, it It, it didn't come to pass because unfortunately he died, Dylan died. But I don't believe in the, you know, the, those that say he was burnt out, you know. I think as you quite rightly, I think you suggested it, Richard, is that he lived, who know, he may have started to curtail the drinking, do you see what I'm saying? He may have, uh, he may have had a, a wake up call, do you see what I'm saying? Of course, And, yeah. um, you know, who knows? A lot of people mellow in their yeah, old age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what would Dylan have earned most of his income from here in New York? Would it have been pub from publishing, the, the speaking it events? Would, it would have been true, it would have been true. It would have been the readings and it would have been also the fact that uh, his books were, you know, uh, his, the books that he published in America were actually st selling, you know. And uh, that's the case for most poets. You, you make your money, you know, at book launches or readings. That's when you sell books. Um, but they would have been selling in bookshops, you know. and. Um, had Dylan be more wiser with the money, you know, they, they could have, they could have ticked along. I mean, uh, um, and of course back in uh, Wales, he could always go to Florence the mother or DJ David John the father and ask for a loan, do you see what I'm saying? But again, he pumped up the notion of poverty, do you see what I'm saying? So you have these begging letters to other, like poets like Stephen Spender saying, can you lend me a fiver? But a lot, he built up a wonderful image, you know. Um, uh, I mean, to some extent, that's, if you think about today, modern celebrities, and that's a big part of it, is, is the impression, yeah, the brand that they build for exactly. themselves. Exactly, I mean, Dylan, exactly, Dylan was doing it then, and why not, you know? Um, I mean, you couldn't get up with some of Dylan's escapades now as a poet, but I mean, I can understand, you know? Um, uh, you know, most poets have the, you know, people have an image of them, so Larkin is the, the cool, the quiet, uh, almost cold librarian, do you see what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah, most, you know, Ted Hughes was the, uh, the kind of um, into anthropology and obsessed with nature and animals. So each poet has an image, you know? So what, for people who don't know Dylan as well as perhaps you know yes. others, what what are some of the kind of the famous stories or and, and maybe perpetuated myths of uh, of Dylan Thomas and the legend? Um, there are all kinds. So for instance, um, it's said that um, when he eventually met Charlie Chaplin, uh, which was one of his one of the desires of Dylan was to meet Charlie Chaplin. Uh, Dylan, uh, Dylan turned up drunk, um, I mean Chaplin threw a party, you know, and uh, his behaviour wasn't the best and um, Dylan, I think, either leaving or, or in between, urinated in a flower pot 
and uh, was kind of asked to leave uh, by Charlie Chaplin, you know. Um, so you have those kind of tales. I mean, another and is, that, is that a tale that you know we think is true, or is we think that's a bit of a, a tall tale? Well, it's in all the it's in most of the biographies, so it's gone down as truths, you know. And you know the problem is, is here where do you where does fact and fiction when it comes to Dylan part? Do you see yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, he would suddenly throw himself at women, you know, and or lift a woman up, and uh, that's the kind of stories that uh, added to the legend, you know. And um, but you know, you balance that, of course, with uh, you know, this was someone back in Lan who could sit in the shed, you know, that was above the boat, the, the writing shed, wouldn't drink, you know, didn't drink whilst writing, and. Um, would apply himself to the craft of either a poem or, a, or under Milkwood, you know, tidying her up, or, or the, the, the beautiful stories in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dog. Um, but, you know, see, even that title, I mean, it, it shows the mischievousness of Dylan. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man was a book by James Joyce, and when Dylan collected his stories about childhood into teen, the teenage, well, you know, the young man age, um, he named his book Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dog, you know, like, well, I'm a young dog, I'm not a young man, kind of thing. So, that, uh, you know, that kind of conveys. <laughs> so, it's one, this is, so this is uh, Ch Cherry Lane Theatre, anyway. Now, Cherry Lane Theatre, um, it was founded by the poet and playwright Edna St. Vincent Millay. So, if you think of that name, Edna St. Vincent Millay, do you automatically think of a connection with the hospital? Her uncle became very unwell. Uh, uh, he was taken to St. Vincent's Hospital um, and his parents decided that the, the doctors did such a marvellous job when he was unwell that, it, that um, you know, it, uh, his sister, who was Edna St. Vincent's uh, Millay's mother, decided when Edna came along she would give Edna the middle name in honour of the hospital. Yeah. And she founded Cherry Lane Theatre, which was originally Cherry Lane Playhouse uh, in 1924. As New York's oldest off-Broadway theatre, it has been at the for forefront of providing innovative theatre for over 80 years. The downtown theatre movement, the Living Theatre, established by the actress and political activist Judith Molina, and the Theatre of the Absurd came out of this theatre. Um, it showcased the early plays of Edward Albee, uh, a very famous writer, um, and premiered Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, which is a, a classic. Its list of renowned, renowned performers sorry, includes Gene Hackman, the actor, Bob Dylan, and of course Dylan Thomas. Surprisingly, Barbara Streisand was once an usher. She worked as an usher in this theatre. Uh, in 1952, on a second visit to the theatre, Dylan did a special reading for the artistic community and tickets were only one dollar per person. Dylan forgot the, to bring the poems he planned to read and he promised to read from only his own works and I'll say what he, about other poets that he read as we go along. Uh, luckily, Judith Molina, she had a copy of Dylan's poems, a book, and she went and got it and Dylan did the reading. Okay, so... So we're going to uh, McDougall Street now, isn't it? McDougall Street, okay. It's on the corner of McDougall Street and Manetta Lane. You got the map, Rich? Yeah. So we talked about Dylan getting up to mischief. Yes. I got my number 36 right here. It sort of feels like he was almost trying to live up to 
the expectation that people had that of him. That is the problem, isn't it, see? So, um, he'd already had a reputation in London, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, Auden, I believe it was Auden who, when Brennan said he was organising these visits for Dylan, okay, oh, yeah, right. when Brennan was organising these visits, I think it was Auden who said to Brennan, you know, you're taking on something, do you see what I'm saying? Kind of thing, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but yes, once you build an image, of course, you have to li live up to it, don't you? And uh, the stage of America was so big for Dylan, do you see what I'm saying? It was far bigger than the London stage. And um, Where did he, beyond New York, where were the other places that he spent most of the time? He went as far going? as California, for instance, you know, Boston. Um, he covered a, a lot of states and did a lot of readings. And despite uh, the image of the drunk, he only ever let what he didn't turn up for one reading, and that was a, a kind of mistake, you know. So he didn't let, you know, the, the, he, you know, you'd think from the image he would have let everyone down, but he yeah. didn't. No, only one reading he failed out of, you know, hundreds of readings over those that, that period of four visits. He didn't drink when he wrote, but um, he would sometimes have a drink uh, before a reading, you know, and. Um, there is one recording where he's obviously drunk in front of uh, college girls and they start giggling because he must have like shake the microphone and he says that's right laugh laugh at an old ham you know kind of thing you know but uh, I think you know most poets would have a drink before a reading it just it settles your nerves you know. The nerves in so what are we crossing now this is 7th Avenue the heart of the West Village. Mm -hmm. And what's the name of the next place we're going to? It's um, the Minetta Tavern. The Minetta oh, the Tavern. The Minetta Tavern is infamous for having one of the best burgers I in see. New York City. Yeah. Yeah. They all say that. Yeah. No, Minetta's known for it. It's, it's a hard, it's, it's, it's frequented by celebrities yeah. still today. And you get a lot of, you have to book a table well in advance. But supposedly their burger is to die for. I see. I can't say I've had it myself, but. Well, you're not a celebrity, they wouldn't let you in. Not yet, Gideon, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's left here. Uh, hang on, sorry. A little confused now. Yeah, left here. Yeah. Left here. Look, these are all the people queuing up for the burger. You're joking. Oh, that is the burger, yeah. the famous burger. I see. Wow, yes. look at all the famous people. I can see Sting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we are, Minetta Tavern. Yes. And um, the Minetta Tavern, which was a speakeasy during Prohibition, was known as the Black Rabbit until 1929. The Minetta Brook, which began on 23rd Street on its way to the Hudson, inspired its name. The brook still flows underground. Um, the old wood panelling and time-honoured candelabra, which is still part of the attraction for today's customers... I can see them through the blinds. Yeah, ...appealed to decades of poets and writers, including uh, Ernest Hemingway, Ezra Pound, Eugene O'Neill, E. Cummings, and of course, Dylan Thomas. Dylan became a good friend of Joe Gould, who was known as Professor Seagull. A Harvard graduate, Gould, Gould claimed to understand the language of seagulls and wrote several thousand pages of an imagery, obviously unpublished, a great work, an oral history of our time. Dylan would often seek out characters. He much, he much preferred to sit with dock workers uh, and workmen in, in the, the White Horse and sit with academics, didn't he? Mm. he? He disliked being cornered by academics, you know? And um, it's been suggested, actually, that uh, Reader's Digest uh, started uh, in this very building, originated in the basement of the property. 
Uh, more recently, the Manetta was featured in the film Jimmy Blue Eyes, which is about the New York, New York mobster Vincent Jimmy Blue Eyes Alo. Um, but yes, um, it, again, it was a, a favourite of Dylan's. And of course, when, when he went out um, and had the 18 straight whiskies, um, we know he went to the White Horse Tavern, but where else did he drink? And, you know, it could well be some of these places that we've already looked at, Chumley's and uh, Manetta Tavern, you know. Uh, you said earlier that the 18th, 18th whiskies we now know is a myth. It is a myth, yeah. yeah. Did he say it? Uh, he did actually say he it. He said it, yeah. but it's not true. Yeah, again, he did actually say it. He said it to Liz Reitel, the, you know, the secretary, Brennan's secretary, they'd started an affair whilst working on trying for Dylan to complete under Milkwood, you know, because it was, it was premiered in New York, see? And, um, but um, some friends did kind of try to follow the route and went into the various bars that Dylan would likely have gone into, possibly this one, and checked with the landlords with regards to their whiskey, um, you know, how much whiskey was still left there. And it was calculated probably six whiskies. But when you think of it, see, uh, you know this, I'm sure. An American whiskey, right, is uh, a single, is like a double if you compare it to a, a, a whiskey back in the UK. I didn't know that. So he was drinking twice as much. He was also, we know, at this late time he was taking medication. He was taking Benzedrine because, you know, the demand of everything, completing under Milkwood uh, and feature, you know, being featured in it and uh, the pressures of reading. You need this, you know, and in those days it was very popular, you know, to take this and it would give you a lift, you know. It's like a, probably like a caffeine boost, you see what I'm saying? Um, but of course Dylan was an unwell man as well. But yeah, we do know for sure, I mean, you think of it, if he drank 18 whiskies alone, and they were doubles compared to British whiskies, I mean, back in Wales in London, Dylan was a beer man, right? He would be quite content with a, a quiet, you know, a little, a little mild beer. And it was only when, you know, Angers On came into the pub, you know, Dylan groupies, if you like, that he would start on the whiskey and start to knock it back. Show it but, off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I'm sure, you know, I'm, it's safe to say that he did not drink 18 Street whiskies. But of course, you know, a leg legendary statement like that is very difficult to rub away, do you see what I'm saying? Um, very difficult. I mean, you know. And if it's helping, if it's helping build his reputation Which and, and namesake I mean, at the time, then I mean, you can see why he might. Let's be. I meet so many. Oh my, you know, I've been coming to America first time 1997, but becoming coming annually since uh, I first came in 2008, and uh, I meet people, you know, to do with Dylan, you know, what I know about Dylan Thomas. They know all about the Wild Man, but they they've never really read the works, do you see what I'm saying? And they don't really. It, it's you know, it attracts most. I mean, Mick Jagger. Uh, there was talk of him making a film on Dylan. You know, most of the rock stars who claim, uh, you know, they admire Dylan, it's usually to do with the wild image. He was the first rock and roll poet, really, you see, you know. Uh, acted like uh, you expect rock and roll people to act, you know. Um, but, okay. So, um, Next stop, another close one nearby, right? That's right. It's, it used to be the San Remo Cafe. When I came, it was the coffee, bean and tea leaf. So, yeah, here we are, I think. On this corner, is it? It's changed again, then. Oh, it's gone. It's you said gone. it was the coffee, bean and tea leaf? Yeah. Well, that's uh, it. Oh, yeah, look, but it's empty. Ah, oh, there you are, then. The coffee, look, bean and there's tea There's a plaque there, Richard, if you want to take a photo. Site of San Remo Cafe. There you are, Dylan Thomas, looks Oh, my yeah. goodness. James Baldwin. Okay. And look at, look at the company he's in. Yeah. Alan Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs. 
because I'm I'm going to say something about those now. And the lady I mentioned, of see Judith Molina, I mentioned back at the yes. Cherry Lane. In its post-war heyday, the San Remo was a meeting place for an unparalleled array of figures from the Beat Movement, the New York School of Poets and Painters, and the Living Theatre. These literary and artistic icons became the voices of their generation, and their impact still resonates today. And there he is. I love yeah. that. That's so cool. it's changed again, yes. So, anyway, um, so we, we, well, we're at the building that was the San Remo Cafe. Um, after the preferred White Horse Tavern, San Remo was one of Dylan's favourite bars in Manhattan. And we're on the corner of Bleecker and Dougal Yes, now. yes. It was the desired place for a host of famous writers, as you just saw, uh, artists, musicians and photographers, including Tennessee William, William Burroughs, the Beat Poets, Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso, W.H. Auden, James Baldwin, and Jackson Pollock, the painter, and Miles Davis, the jazz musician. Uh, Gore Vidal, the famous writer, once tried to pick up Jack Kerouac in the San Remo. It is the setting of John Clellan, Clellan Holmes' 1952 beat novel, Go, and it also appears as the mask in Jack Kerouac's 1958, The Subterraneans. Dylan actually met Alan Ginsberg in this cafe, and the beat poet noted that Dylan played on his fame. You know, so we're back to the, the kind of pumping up the image, you know. Um, Ginsburg actually invited him, Dylan, back to uh, uh, where he lived at 206 East 7th Street, but was turned down because a friend reminded Dylan that Caitlin was waiting for him. Uh, Ginsburg left, sticking his tongue out playfully at Dylan, and later regretted he had not made more of the encounter, you know. Um, so, yes, after the White House Tavern, this was his second favorite place to come and chill out and have beers and play what they called instant dylan you know instant dylan meaning that you could just turn on the wild poets here yeah? um. so this thing of instant dylan yes it's like he's always hiring to perform on or off the stage yes it must yes. have been exhausting well exactly exactly and um well, you, turn, you would turn to a drink, wouldn't you, in that situation, I think? Well, exactly. A few beers gets, gets you in the mood to kind of do that thing, isn't it? We all become a bit looser after a few beers, don't we, with our, what we will tell people and what we will share with people, you know? True. But yes, you're quite right. I mean, it's a taxing thing to, to keep it up, isn't it? You know? <laughs> so I think it's here somewhere, is it? Um, what number? There it is there, look. Okay. okay, so the Grand Tacchino at the time, one of the finest Italian restaurants in Greenwich Village, is where Dylan is said to have experienced his first meal in America. John Malcolm Brennan, the organizer of Dylan's visits, took Dylan on a second day visit throughout New York by car and then brought him to the Tokino. Dylan also spent time at the Tokino with the British poet Rufin Todd and New Zealand poet Alan Kernow. Um, he wrote back to his parents, DJ David John and Florence, about American food. He had sampled milkshakes, fried shrimp, and, I quote, a T-bone steak the size of a month's ration for an English family. So that's about it. But um, it's significant because, in a sense, he, he, this is his first real experience of, of American food. Later, as he became unwell, Brennan and others, those that cared for Dylan, like Liz Rattel, they had problems because he stopped, he, 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 you know, it was difficult to feed him. He didn't want to eat. So they... He's still drinking. Yeah, still drinking. So they struck on the idea of giving him milkshakes, you know, 
but um, you know to get something in him, do you see what I'm saying? But uh, he did reach that point where he, you know, he wasn't interested in food because he was so unwell, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're um, well, we're on the seventh. So we're going to Waverley Place, which is on the corner of McDougal Street. Oh, we're gonna go past Washington Street Park, Washington that, Square Park. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Your favourite. Yeah. I do love Washington Square Park. Yeah. Long day like today. Which way, Rich? We're going to go right, so no, we might we're going up there. Here. I see. Yeah. So how many, um, how many visits would you have done now to New York? Because you gosh, about 10, 12? Yeah. yeah, over the years. Yeah. When was the first? Uh, was the 1997, first one? 1997. Oh, that was the first one. Yeah. Primarily mine to do with my own work, you know. Yeah. Well, um, that was where you did that. That was when you were writing for the West. But of I came there right? three times to connect it with Dylan, you know. Yeah. Uh, when we launched the official walk that New York tours do. And how did that happen? Like, how did that happen? Well, that came via Catherine, I did see. Ah, and, so they were um, looking for someone to do a talk. Yeah, and so they appropriated mine, you know, and they acknowledged it in the publicity I saw originally. And then I came for the centenary, and I, I did uh, several readings for Catherine, and I did talks on Dylan Thomas, you know, uh, in the Chrysler building. Ah. So, it's not long for that beer, no? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Um, I wrote this book on Dylan Thomas, and obviously the Washington Square is mm -hmm. here. I was just wondering if we could step inside for me to say a few words because of the noise of the traffic. We're doing a podcast. Oh, thank you so much. No thank you. You can go right in the back. Okay, thank you. So we, this is number seven. The yeah, it's number seven. So. so tell us about where we are now. So we're actually in, we've yes, inside okay, for a little bit ready? of respite yeah. and a... Yeah, I'm glad glass, she let us in. That's a glass of water. Of yeah. um, we're sitting in the cafe area at the Washington Square uh, Hotel. Square Hotel, yeah. So it was once the Hotel Earl, okay? Uh, on the first visit, John Malcolm Brennan booked Dylan into the Beekman Hotel on the corner of First Avenue and 49th Street in a room at least 20 floors up. Dylan had wanted to stay in an apartment in New York rather than a hotel and did not like the Beekman. As it was, the hotel management soon asked Dylan to leave because of loud partying and excessive demands on room service. Uh, so Brennan then booked Dylan into the Hotel Earl, which at the time was a cheaper place than the Beekman, closer to the Dylan's favourite bars and restaurants in Greenwich Village. In the 1950s, uh, it was a somewhat well-worn property and uh, the atmosphere and the attitude of the management staff was easygoing. So that would have suited Dylan, you know. Dylan wrote a letter to his parents in May 1950 in which he described the Earl, and I quote, as right in Washington Square, a beautiful square which is right in the middle of Greenwich Village, the artist quarter of New York. D Dylan certainly liked it, you know, and um, probably still acted the same, I'd imagine, you know, the partying. And um, So what would happen, see, is uh, you could call them, if you like, Dylan groupies, but they were as many men as women, and probably more men, female poets, you know, and writers. They would find out from either Brynden or somewhere where he was based, and then they'd congregate in that bar, you know, and that kind of thing. And then I suppose they'd buy a few bottles of whiskey and go up to Dylan's room, and, you know, and till midnight and beyond, you know. Yeah. On the second visit, when Caitlin accompanied Dylan in 1952, they stopped for a couple of nights in this in this hotel, and then they were moved to the Hotel Chelsea, situated on West 23rd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. Constructed in 1883, it became Dylan's home on his American visits. 
Other famous literary figures associated uh, with, with uh, the, the Chelsea include uh, Arthur Miller, Thomas Wolfe, and the novelist and short story writer O. Henry. Some famous people who lived there for, for a while included uh, Jackson Pollock, the writer, uh, 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 sorry, the painter, and Welsh musician John Cale, along with his then wife, Betsy Johnson. It was at the Chelsea that Dylan worked on the final version of Under Milkwood prior to its New York premiere. And this is where the development of Liz Rytel mm -hmm. came about. They were, Dylan was trying, he promised Brennan he would finish it in Lang, but didn't because uh, he was harassed by all kinds of things. And so he was literally on the premiere passing, they were passing to the actors and Dylan last minute changes. The new pages yeah, on yeah, the night were yeah, out. Yeah, well, you know, like scribble pay alterations for them to run through before the audience, before the curtain went up, you know, and they were confronted by the audience. And at the very first uh, performance, which actually was on the third visit, it was in May, uh, that was the premiere and there was another performance, um, they were worried, Dylan and the actors, because there was no reaction to Under Milk Good. You know, the, the opening, the famous opening, to begin at the beginning, and it is spring, moonless, etc. And um, even when they started, the funny part start, you know, um, there was no laughter. And uh, there's nothing worse, of course, for a, an actor or a writer if you're trying to be funny. But then eventually they picked up on it and they realised this is not um, a serious p piece of verse drama. Like, because the big, in fairness, the beginning does suggest that. You know, mm. it's so beautiful. Um, they realised this is funny, and then the lit, you know, the laughter started, and they had standing ovations and everything. And um, you know, it is a wonderful piece. And again, it's, it's, it's the, f you know, it's unique. I mean, no one else has has written such a piece and no one could, you know. What, what makes it so, like, what is, makes it so iconic and so... I think it's, one is because it is, uh, it's play for voices and it's poetic, okay? So, you know, like in a sense, I mean, you wouldn't quite call it Kanganet, but I mean, he certainly utilises sound texturing, you know, to begin at the beginning. It is spring, moonless and starless black, you know, and it goes on like that, doesn't it? But you see, to begin at the beginning, it is spring, see the echo there? And he does it throughout, you know, so that makes it beautiful. But the characters, one is, um, of course, it didn't go down too well, well back back home originally, because they thought, you know, the they were caricatures rather than characters. Um, but we've all known the gossips, and we, and we've all known, uh, you know, the, the kind of, um, you know, the kind of characters you see in Underwood. I think it's it's a, it's a, it's novel, particularly to Americans. It would have been so unlike. A village they would experience, do you see what I'm saying? It's almost exotic to yeah. them. It's exotic, very good word to use. It's exotic and um, it's just beautiful and it's moving in parts as well, you know. So when Captain Cat is speaking about Rosie, it's quite moving, you know. And um, you know, the first voice and the second voice, and again, this is Dylan being very innovative, uh, they're almost like cameramen, do you see what I'm saying? They, it, they, it's narration, but they actually tell you about Flareggib, you know, and they tell you about the characters. So it's almost like you get long shots and close-up shots of everything, do you see what I'm saying? So they're walking through the village, and if you, I don't know if you ever saw the film version, which uh, uh, Richard Burton and Liz Taylor starred in, but also um, oh, the Brian Davis, the Welsh actor, alongside Richard Burton. So Richard Burton is first voice, and Ryan Davis is second voice. And they move through the village, you know, and it's wonderful. And as, uh, as they're moving, they describe what Dylan's describing and describe, introduce the characters. So that was very innovative at the time to do that, you know, uh, very innovative. 
And I, again, I think I said it earlier that when Dylan worked on films during the Second World War, these propaganda pieces, he learned the skills, you know, and he incorporated some of those into Under Milk Goods, such as using f two characters, almost like cameras, you know, mm. to, to visually describe, you know, to because it was for radio, it was, it was a radio piece. It yeah. was commissioned. By it was commissioned, yeah. And Doug so how did he get away with performing his BBC commission in America before it goes out in the UK? Um, there was no issue. In fact, um, before he left on that final visit, he met Douglas Cleverdon, who was uh, worked for BBC, yeah, BBC producer. And in fact, uh, he, he lost uh, he lost the script. He lost, lost the version of it. And well, the Cleverdon, physical version. Yeah, physical. The only physical version, and in a pub. And Cleverdon had to uh, they retrieve it, and then got um, uh, his t like a typist to type it up so Dylan would have a copy. I think it was just part of the deal. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean. I don't think it bothered them that, uh, and in fact, if you think about it, it was a bit of a good piece of publicity, wasn't it? Mm. The fact that it had premiered in America. To, to huge success. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was also from there, of course, the Hotel Chelsea, where he was taken unconscious uh, to the St. Vincent's Hospital. There is a plaque on the Hotel Chelsea which reads, Dylan Thomas lived and wrote at the Chelsea Hotel, and from here he sailed out to die, which is a kind of quotation from one of his poems, uh, where he says, as I sailed out to die, it's called Poem on His Birthday, so they've kind of incorporated that into the plaque. It's a nice touch. The other thing, you, you know, um, worth mentioning is that um, he only wrote one piece ever about America. And um, it's a short piece, it's a very funny piece, uh, uh, A Visit to America. Uh, he was commissioned to write a travelling book, uh, along with Caitlin, but they never fulfilled it. And to... Um, the, you know, the commissioning publisher was quite upset, but to balance that, back in London, Dylan's agent, agent actually offered him uh, other rights, do some saying, and, and placated the guy. But, uh, but Dylan, you know, didn't write poems about America, um, only this one comical piece. It is funny. Do you know why? I think it's because of the schedule. I think it was just too demanding. Even, you know, the first visit, I mean, you know, you know, 40 engagements stretched across America. That's a hell of a lot, you know. I mean, Ronway and I, I think we did about 25 stretch from New York to California, up to Michigan, Colorado, you know, and, and other places. Um, and, you know, also, uh, you know, he was drinking, partying, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, so he didn't have that kind of, you know, that calmness and solitariness that he had back at home in the shed, do you see what I'm saying? Um, you know, who knows? He might have scribbled a few things that one day might somebody might discover, and they would be worth a fortune. Do you mean? Mm. You know, like a few notes that he'd written. I mean, you never know. You know, the one thing we don't have, see, and if that was discovered, it would be worth quite a lot. But this, with regards to literary history, it would be so important. We don't have a moving a movie of Dylan, mm. either in New York or California. Or there's Reading. no there's no movie footage. There's no moving footage of Dylan at all in America. Wow. You'd think that that's where it would most likely have yeah, happened. Yeah, well, exactly. Yes, when you think of, you, you know, and um, as I write in my piece about Greenwich Village for the uh, anthology of pieces on Dylan, uh, a Dylan Odyssey, um, all those young men, you know, like David Slifka, they were the new empire. America was, you know, after the Second World War, America, that's when its empirical status started, really, and that's why it's the power it is now, you know. Um, Britain was in debt, Germany was in debt, do you see what I'm saying? So they, you know, the British Empire was fragmenting. So 
they, you know, the, you know, the world was their oyster, if you like. And I would have thought your average family would have had, uh, you know, the old eight, was it the eight millimeter, is it, you know? I mean, and they were mostly, most of the people Dylan mixed with were middle class, do you see what I'm saying? So, you know, middle class literary academics and that, and poets. So I would have imagined, you know, that, you know, but no, there's no, no evidence at all of any moving image of them. There must be some somewhere. Who knows, one day it might turn up in someone's attic and someone might, you know, the grandchild or a great-grandchild, they might realise what they've got, hopefully, you know. Um, and, you know, that's about it for this, for this particular place. So, when we leave here now, where, where are we going? We're going to E. Cummings Place in Patchin Place, okay? Um, so, let's see where it is now. It's uh, off West 10th Street between 6th Avenue and Greenwich Avenue, okay? okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoy it. Thanks. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. There, right. right. Lead the way. Uh, yes. Okay. I think we're going this yeah, way. Yeah. 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 Oh, you got a little map there too. Good. I've got a little map here as well. See. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, so so we, we're at set. Yeah, we go we're up. on seven, right? So yeah. we should um, up here, then hit a right on yeah. uh, ninth. Okay. Yeah. No, six. Six Avenue. Six Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. Are we getting close? Just there, the gate's there, see? Patch in place. Yeah, yeah. It's a gated, uh, it's probably closed, but we'll see the property if we look through the gate. So it's a shame you can't see, there's a plaque actually on the wall, but you can't see it from this, uh, from this. Oh, you can go in actually. Oh, we can go, oh, great, yeah. I thought it was locked. <laughs> okay, so um, this is for, for Patch in place. Um, where he coming to the poet, uh, lived. I should say first of all, Cumming, like Dylan Thomas, Cumming, Cummings did something very innovative with uh, language, you know. Cummings, for, for, for a start, actually used um, lowercase letters in all his poems, right? Never used capital. And actually, so you can see his name there, not in this plaque, but you can see... Oh yeah. Right? Okay. So, even it's there, it's E. Cummings' initials, yes, so even yeah, lowercase. Yes, exactly, yes. Uh, the American poet E. Cummings, Edward Essling Cummings, uh, lived uh, in this building with his third wife, Marion Morehouse, a photographer and fashion model from 1923 until Cummings' death in 1962. Dylan really admired Cummings and on the first visit to New York made a special request to Brennan to arrange a meeting with Cummings. You know, that in itself was unusual. Dylan, as far as I know, that was the only, other than Charlie Chaplin, when he gets that, to that state, that was the only request to actually meet um, a fellow poet. Um, Brennan, Brennan, who was present at the meeting between Dylan and E, uh, wrote in Dylan Thomas in America, the book, it seemed to me that some of their judgments showed the acerb, profound and confident insight of artists who in their work have defined a world within the world. Cummings, in fact, had been in the audience at Dylan's first reading at the Kaufman Auditorium of the 1902nd Street Y on 23rd of February 1950, where Dylan delivered a spellbinding performance to an audience of more than a thousand people. 
The overwhelmed and appreciative audience refused to let Dylan leave the stage. According to Marion, Cummings was so moved, he walked the streets for hours afterwards. The following week or so, Marion invited Dylan to Patchen Place to take some photographs. Dylan had had a few drinks and attempted a playful seduction. Marion described uh, Dylan as grouch remarks on a bad day. <laughs> uh, after Dylan's death, a committee was formed by his American publisher, James Lochlin, to organise support for Caitlin and the children. And Cummings was part of this committee, and an amount of $20,000 was raised. There is another uh, connection between Patchen Place and Dylan. So if we look across the road, can you see number five? The writer, Juna Barnes, lived in Patchen, five Patchen Place from the 1940s onwards. She was an obsessive recluse, and according to Constantine Fitzgibbon, Dylan's first biographer, Barnes, along with James Joyce, influenced D Dylan's early prose writings. It has been noted by others that Dylan particularly liked her novel, Nightwood, which was published in 1936. I, I was aware of Juna Barnes and influence, but I did not know until I was commissioned with her on me to do this walk. That, that it was opposite. That she, that she literally lived opposite the Cummings, or even lived in uh, Greenwich Village. Yeah. So that was a. Uh, you know, if I was a, a recluse, yeah. probably wouldn't live in the West Village. No, no, exactly. <laughs> so we go to Eleventh um, Street at Seventh Avenue now, which is uh, where where the, the hospital was actually. Ah, was okay, St Vincent's. But when I came with a runway in two thousand eight, we were lucky enough to uh, see see it, you know, and it was the one place where she was obviously moved, you know. I'm sure. By the experience, yes. You know, the it's not this, is it? Is it this building? I'm getting confused now. Hang on. Because on the map, no, actually. Because this, this, this is... one. It's this one. It has this, to be. Yeah. Because this, this, this Northwell Health, so this is a private hospital. There you are. This, this one, not that. Radiology, yeah. yeah. There you are. Okay. Yeah. St. Vincent's Hospital is straight up 11th Street from the White Horse Tavern. Dylan's favourite New York bar. Roman Catholics ran the hospital when Dr. Milton Feltenstein, Liz Reitel's doctor, ordered an ambulance to take an unconscious Dylan there. The myth is that Dylan died as a result of a drinking bout in the White Horse Tavern when he declared to Liz Reitel back at the Hotel Chelsea, I've had 18 straight whiskies. I think that's a record. The truth is more complex. When Dylan arrived in New York on Monday, 19th of October, 1953, for a fourth visit to the city, he was already des des desperately unwell. Yet he still seemed to have no desire to curtail his drinking or smoking. There is evidence that he was becoming increasingly dependent on medication. He was also suffering blackouts and his behavior at times was erratic. Well, actually, he left, um, when he left uh, Wales, the night before, Caitlin and him had gone to the cinema in Kamar then and he had a blackout and it so happened oddly that their doctor was behind them and Dylan promised to visit him when he came back from America. And the other thing is when he got to London and he had the usual gathering with his friends and cronies, you know, the, the kind of bon voyage drinks, um, he actually, as he was um, heading off, he actually gave the thumbs down sign to one of them as if to say, do you know what I mean, rather than that. but. But who knows, we, make, we can make of that after, do you see what I'm saying? Of all these little signs and symbols and signals, but who knows?
On Tuesday, 3rd of November, Dylan started weeping in his bedroom at the Chelsea. He told Liz Reitel that he wanted to die and go to the Garden of Eden. At 2 o'clock in the morning, he told her he had to have a drink and left for the White Horse. He returned to the Chelsea and boasted about the whiskies. He slept until the middle of the morning of 4th of November. He went with Liz to the White Horse where he had two glasses of beer. On returning to the Chelsea, he became so unwell that Dr. Feltenstein was called three times. Feltenstein's fourth summoning to the Chelsea on Thursday, 5th of November, resulted in Dylan being rushed to St. Vincent's, where he was admitted at 1.58 a.m. Caitlin arrived at Idlewild Airport on Sunday morning where she was met by David and Rose Slifka. When she saw Brennan, she asked, well, is the bloody man dead or alive? Dylan died at lunchtime on 9th of November, 1953, while a nurse was giving him a bed bath. Poet John Berryman was the only other person present. To this day, there is controversy over what actually caused Dylan's death. While his lifestyle of smoking and excessive drinking contributed to bad health, it has been suggested that he suffered from undiagnosed diabetes. However, it is medical negligence that most experts now claim was the real cause. Four days prior to Dylan's death, Dr. Feltenstein had given Dylan a large dose of morphine as a sedative, far too much. The post-mortem stated pneumonia as the primary source of death with pressure on the brain and a fatty liver as contributing factors. St. Vincent's Hospital closed in April 2010 for renovation. Feltenstein always refused the family, the wrong way, and her brothers tried to get something written down, but he always refused to actually speak about it. Um, one of the doctors at the hospital actually said it was an insult to the brain, which is a kind of insult in itself, you know. So Caitlin was in New York they, what happened when Brennan was aware, you know, how serious it was, um, she, he was a bit afraid of contacting Caitlin directly because Caitlin hadn't wanted Dylan to come on, come on that visit. And he persuaded Dylan to come, so he... No, was... no, it was Dylan actually who wanted to, so Brennan didn't uh, twist his arm in any, in any way. Um, but Brennan contacted, contacted uh, uh, Dylan's London agent, so she then, so... Caitlin was informed by the agent. She was looked after by Rose and David Slifka. Uh, she became so upset that she pulled a cross off the wall because it was run by Roman Catholics. Uh, she kind of insulted Brennan and um, she ended up an, uh, being taken to an asylum a hospital on Long Island just to kind of calm her down. And uh, um, She said at the time that she was just she completely heartbroken you know oh, so it's did, grief yeah <laughs> yeah so, that, you know and you have to remember for that, yeah. Yeah. you know one is the age right 39 years old I mean guy look at you know I mean my eldest son is 45 and I've got a son who's just over 40 uh, I've got three sons but you know when you think of 39 it's so young the other thing of course despite their kind of uh, their dog fights between them I mean I mean he does say I mean he, he said you know it's Caitlin I love I mean the others, although he got close to falling in love with Liz Rytel, but I mean, you know, I've no doubt that uh, there was real love between Ka Caitlin and, and Dylan, you know. And so, yes, it was grief, you know, their actions were, were total grief, you know.
we now go into the final one, which is the White Horse Tavern. Not far, and, is it? Yeah. So it's on Hudson Street. We are going back to where we went. West 11. So it's literally a straight walk, isn't it? Uh, I think it's this way, is it? Uh, West 11. Okay, West 11. Yeah. yeah, it's up that way, I think. Okay. Yeah, it's right here. Uh, So has it been it's changed hands? Yeah, and that's always the problem with these historical places, do you see what I'm saying? But it must, uh, is there any listed bill, is it? It's not listed, unfortunately. Yeah. No. Well, I guess it's not a... And they actually had a photo of a runway that was put in there in, by 2000, after a death by Catherine Brace. Uh, oh, yeah. Will all that go? It's a real shame if it does, you know. There it is, look, across the way. Should we cross here? Oh, they've changed it all by the looks of it. Oh, look, it's open. Oh. Hello? Hello? I wonder if the photos of Dylan have gone. Hello? Hello? We just look a second. Hello? 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 Hello there. Excuse me. Oh, sorry to trouble you. Um, sorry to trouble you. I wrote a book on Dylan Thomas, the poet, and mm -hmm. uh, he used to drink in this pub, you know. Yes. And I was just wondering, will the photos of him still go up when after the oh, revolution? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Oh good. Everything the same. They, oh, they that's good. They got them all wrapped up somewhere. Oh, that's good news. Yeah, everything's coming. They had a big one over here. Yeah. Oh, great news. Yeah. No. Everything, all right. Everything the same. Oh, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Okay, I got some good news. Anyway, they are going to. Well, so that's great news. You know, it is so significant to the story of Dylan Thomas. You yeah. know, um, almost as important as Browns back in Lan. You know, the Browns pub. So that's really great news. That is wonderful news. So shall I say my piece? Uh, yes, I think now is the time. Okay. Yeah. White Horse Tavern. Dylan lovingly called it the Horse one of New York's oldest bars, dating back to 1880, the horse's British pub atmosphere made Dylan feel very much at home. You would have seen the masts and funnels of ships in the Hudson River, teasing the sky at the end of the streets, possibly reminding him of Swansea's dockside area. Dylan and fellow writers would also have chatted and sat with seamen and dock workers who frequented the White Horse. In Dylan's day, an elderly German gentleman and his wife ran the tavern. Many other writers, literary figures and artists have also enjoyed a drink in the White Horse, including Norman Mailer, James Baldwin, Jack Kerouac, the Clancy Brothers, Bob Dylan and Jim Morrison. It is Dil Dylan Thomas, though, who is most associated with the bar. Dylan Thomas is often thought of as the first rock and roll poet. He spent months away from home touring America, attracted huge audiences at his readings and often got accosted when he appeared in public. He was also the subject of a lot of gossip, rumour and legend, just like rock stars and celebrities are today. In spite of the rumours and gossip and the tragic narrative of his short life, he was a great and original poet, 
a master craftsman who did indeed labor by singing light to leave the world to leave to the world a wonderful collection of poems and prose inspired by waves. Good way to end it. So we're uh, we're now at Entwine, uh, which is a cocktail bar uh, on Washington Street because uh, the White Horse is uh, currently under renovation, uh, but thankfully due to you know, Peter found out when it, it will be back and up and running uh, before in its original run. form. In its original form, so uh, uh, that's very good. But, yeah, very good. Uh, if you, if you do want to come along, there is a, a brilliant Dylan Thomas uh, app. Can you can you tell us a bit about that, Peter, and also the book as well? Yes, that, um, um, you people can follow so along. 2014 was the Dylan Thomas centenary, and. Um, when we were originally commissioned to do the walking tour, uh, Ronway and myself, uh, it was first offered as a PDF, then it was offered as uh, an MP3 version, and uh, then it was offered as a guided tour with New York tours. Um, we, whilst when Ronway was alive, she passed away in t July 2009, we'd always talked about, you know, we need a book version. And so it seemed the appropriate year to do it in the centenary year 2014, Dylan Thomas's centenary. And um, I was approached by um, uh, Literature Wales, uh, who were putting obviously together an incredible programme that year. And they said um, they'd like to incorporate an app version of, of, the, of, the walk, of the walking tour. And I pointed out that we were doing a book version as well, you know, with my New York uh, publisher, Cross Cultural Communications. And so, first of all, they wanted to change it slightly. And then, when they actually read um, uh, what I'd already written, you know, they decided they wouldn't alter anything. So, they um, sponsored the app, uh, Literature Wales, along with the British Council and the DT100 uh, organization that was set up for the centenary. Um, the app is free, um, it's produced by a Welsh company, T Molin. So that's Y-M-O-L-I-N. And the book uh, is available on Amazon. Uh, the book does have additional things, such as a, a self-portrait by Dylan, a self-sketch that he did in a pub, uh, a sketch of Dylan by Caitlin, and uh, a photo I was given uh, of the death mask as it was being made by David Slifka, the sculptor and a friend of Dylan's, whom I met in 1997 at his studio. And it's also got a, a drawing of Dylan Thomas by Jose Garcia Villa, uh, who was a poet uh, and a Greenwich Village friend of, of Dylan. Brilliant. Well, we can I, we can certainly attest for the usage of the app. We've we've used it today to great effect. Uh, and if you actually, actually, so it's on I think iTunes, sorry Apple Store and um, Google. You just look up Dylan Thomas New York tour. Uh, and it has a handy map there that takes us through the, all the ten places that you visited today and the same place that are yeah. visited it's, in the it's book. It's Dylan Thomas walking to Greenwich Village is the name of the app. It's also the name of the book. Yes, yeah. yeah. And here I am looking at my signed copy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, Peter. Well, thank you so much thank for so joining much. us yeah. for this. This I has been really enjoyed uh, myself. very entertaining. You know, Sorry. as I said earlier, I think it's uh, admirable that you're uh, spotlighting uh, Welsh contributions to New York, you know, um, I think that's absolutely wonderful. I think this is a very nice way to end a very pleasant afternoon. So cheers. 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 Well, we hope you enjoyed listening, and if you did, then please subscribe and leave us a review, as long as it's positive.
the more people review the show, the more people will get to hear the show. Yeah, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, then please do. The email is podcast at newyorkwelsh.com or you can contact us through any of the socials. Both our Instagram and Twitter are at newyorkwelsh. And if you'd like to stay up to date with the latest goings-on, you can do so by subscribing to the monthly newsletter on our website, newyorkwelsh.com. Oh, yeah.